As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Good to be here. Uh, and today we're going to do another kind of quick fire Q&A episode responding to some of the questions you've been sending in. Just a reminder, you, we, we love to read your thoughts, your feedback, um, suggestions, disagreements, always welcome. Please do email us, molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. But to start with, this question caught my eye for obvious reasons. Um, this is coming in from a listener called Joan, and she says this, These past few years, I'll admit that I've become very sceptical about journalism in general. I'm not convinced that most journalists are necessarily interested in uncovering the truth and reporting what they find in an unbiased way. I fear that media kingdoms, such as the one owned by Murdoch, are far more interested in selling their point of view and maintaining stock market value than in telling the truth. Even Christian media, especially in the States, has been caught up in so many conspiracy theories of all kinds that I hesitate to trust any of them. Here's my question. How does one find or choose a news source that is politically unaligned and that is seeking to present the facts in an unbiased manner and simply present the truth. <laughs> I've got lots of so, views as you'd expect on this, but I'm, I'm going to ping to you first, Dad, <laughs> just to have your, you do your take and then I'll come in with my own kind of journalism perspective. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating topic. And, and uh, I, I think I, what is generally understood is that a free press, free journalism, uh, investigative journalism that is able to speak truth to power, to use that hackneyed phrase, uh, is actually one of the often unrecognised bedrocks of a healthy democracy. You know, the, the only way that the electorate, that the citizenship uh, can know what is really going on especially with the powerful in their society pretty well the only way is through a really healthy um journalistic enterprise um and without that without a free press without journalists with integrity and and with courage prepared to take risks and so on in order to tell the truth uh, democracy is impossible. And, and you know, I, I think we are seeing across the world, aren't we, you know, from my perspective, um, a 
a kind of attacks on free press. Um, and this is particularly said to be happening in some of those big, supposedly democratic countries like um, India, uh, mm. China, Russia, uh, and in many other countries where it's increasingly impossible to have for journalists to have any kind of freedom to tell the truth about their political masters. So, so I, I, I'm deeply concerned about this. I, I think uh, the problem that I see it from looking in from the outside is that this understanding of the centrality of a free press is not widely recognised or is not appreciated enough. And I suspect particularly by the younger generation. Uh, and and therefore, I, I think there is this, uh, this feeling that, you know, if I get my news through TikTok, if I get my news on my social media phase, if I get it by doing a Google search, that's fine. You know, why, why do I need to uh, spend money uh, to, to pay for news? Um, I, so this understanding that genuine freedom, uh, free press is, is an essential part of democracy. I think that uh, my, my sense is that that is, that is being lost. And therefore, I fear that your profession, Tim, is under great threat. Um, and of course, the, the next big thing that's coming along is AI journalism. And the idea that, uh, and it's already starting, isn't it, the, 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 uh, of AI-based news outlets, uh, who needs yeah. human beings? We just get the algorithms and they'll, they'll, they'll tell us what's going on. I mean, this is a kind of side note, but I was literally talking to another journalist just a few uh, weeks ago who was saying that they had been doing some kind of freelance work. Uh, a kind of mixture of kind of copywriting and and other kind of writing jobs and the company they've been working for for many years doing this inter they would interview people and 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 write it up in, in a certain way is now saying oh we're now offering our clients the chance to go for a half price package where the ai writes it and then the human being just does a light edit at the end to make sure it's good is that all right um, as a result we'll be halving your pay as well um, mm. So this is a this is a very much a reality, but anyway, terrifying reality for me. I I think Joan's question. I mean, I agree with everything you say about the value of the free press for obvious reasons and its kind of declining salience among among people's minds. But what is interesting to me about Joan's question is it's not necessarily about the freedom of the press, but about the quality of the press. Um, that that you know, in, in America, for example, the example she uses is kind of Fox News and the Murdoch Empire. The press is pretty much still pretty free i mean anyone can go into the states start a newspaper and write in the newspaper anything they like and the government will almost entirely leave you alone but the problem is that the press is no longer trustworthy or is perceived to be biased and to be partisan and so you have these free independent media groups large media groups in clutches and murder one but not exclusively which have a perception among some like joan that they are rather than seeking to speak truth to power and challenge injustice and report truthfully and fairly so that the, the educated citizenry have their chance to make up their own mind, they're actually simply kind of an extension of an entertainment industry that is seeking to perpetuate their own stock market value and bottom line and in make, per, per, perpetrating, perpetuating the, the point of view of their, their ownership, irrespective of what the truth is. Um, and that's 
there's actually been a proliferation of media in the States. You know, there are more TV channels and online news outlets now than there have ever been in the history of the States. There's no lack of a free media. The problem is that all these new media that have been created, particularly in the kind of Trump era, have been created purely to serve narrow slices of the population, feeding them untruths, irrespective of the real world reality that kind of scratch their itch. You know, so there are you know, Fox News is being outflanked on the right by multiple hyper-partisan, super right-wing um, uh, news channels that are seeking to peel away the Fox News viewership, the Republican pro-Trump viewership. And in doing so, they genuinely don't care if they lie or not. They just tell absolute factual, objective untruths every single day, every hour. And it's hugely commercially successful. And that is Jones' fear and something I genuinely share that actually the bigger threat for journalism in countries such as the US and potentially the UK is not that the government turns authoritarian and starts, you know, imposing censorship, but is that all media is driven by other commercial or partisan political concerns, and you no longer have that kind of neutral, impartial journalism that is simply unaligned politically and seeking the truth. Is that is that something that you that would worry you as well? Yeah, it, it is. And, uh, and it's not just on the right wing as well, because, no. you know, I, I, I think when you read some of the very well-known left wing, left leaning uh, newspapers and media outlets, uh, as I do uh, quite regularly, I also perceive a kind of constant banging on on certain themes. Uh, and, and whereas I think they're, it's it's less overt in terms of just telling outright lies there's a there's a very strong uh slant a very strong media bias spectacles which are implied so so i do i do see it as as very difficult it's interesting just speaking personally i am fascinated by the rise of things like substack and other uh independent or relatively independent sources which are where journalists are basically taking them going independent and what you do is you find someone you trust and who has a track record and and apparent authenticity and you say i trust that individual i no longer trust whatever it is, the Guardian newspaper, Fox News, uh, to give me consistently reliable, honest, balanced truth. But actually, here's an individual who who has authentic, authenticity and uh, I will trust him. And, and if necessary, what happens in Substack is that you pay, sometimes you can, you, you have the option of paying a regular subscription uh, and, and so, and some journalists, I understand, are now finding that this is a, a, a new business model. And I find this fascinating that, in other words, it's a kind of, uh, it's, we no longer trust institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find institutions, whether even the BBC, even the New York Times, even whatever it is, we've, we increasingly find it impossible to trust them. But we can trust individuals. Hmm. 
I mean, you're right. This is a massive trend in the in recent years. I should declare an interest. I am a freelance journalist who has recently started his own Substack newsletter. Do subscribe to that if you haven't already. You can find it at tsy.substack.com. It's called The Critical Friend. It comes out every week, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the, you're right that there has been this fascinating trend, particularly in, in America, I've noticed, and but increasingly in Britain, where famous, like name famous journalists have left their kind of st- long-standing kind of outlet stables, whether that is, as you say, the BBC or the Times, the Telegraph, the New York Times, CNN, and strike out solo saying, do you know what? I don't need uh, an editor and the institution to promote me and distribute me. The distribution is taken care of for free by the power of the internet and Substack technology. And therefore, I can have a direct relationship with my readers. You each give me $5 a month. And there are people who are literally raking in millions of dollars in subscription revenue through Substack. A few, not many, obviously. Most of us are toiling at very small numbers under oh, yeah, the bottom yeah, of my, that pyramid. My, but there are some people leads. who have genuinely created kind of lifetime financial independence. Simply, they're doing the same thing they've always done, which is write news articles, or often in this case, kind of opinion and comment articles. But by cutting out the middleman of the newspaper or the broadcaster and setting up directly with their their, their readers they create this very tangible, trustworthy relationship, you know. And I think in one level, this is great. I'm involved in this. I'm doing the same thing. It's a new string to my bow in my own profession. I'm enjoying the kind of creative freedom, being able to write whatever I like week by week, cover different topics. But I also have concerns because there's an obvious reason why it appeals to individual journalists, because it gives you total freedom. But actually, the strength and the power of an institution like a newspaper, a website, a news channel, is that you have a plurality of voices and that your story is checked and edited and fact-checked by people from different political perspectives, people who aren't emotionally and personally invested in it, who can call out, you've made a mistake there, or you've gone in too hard on that person there, you're not being reasonable, or actually that's just that's just inaccurate and untrue, you haven't read this study that completely disproves it. And I think there is real merit in doing journalism as a collaborative, collective effort. Even though for me, as the writer, it's often frustrating to have your work edited, I do have to concede it makes it better. And in particular, I think there is also real merit in the idea of, you know, a newspaper like the New York Times or in this country, the Times, aspires in theory, they have their perspectives, but they inspire in theory to say, we're going to present different views to you. You know, on the news reporting pages, we'll cover stories from, you know, red states and blue states, and we'll cover issues that are of interest to the elderly, interest to the young. And then on the opinion pages, we'll have Democrats and Republicans, uh, conservatives and progressives writing their own views. And it's it's created this kind of melange of opinion, which you as the consumer gets this package deal of a newspaper or in an app. Whereas if you're only getting your news from individuals that you've personally subscribed to, it's likely that you're going to be getting quite a partial, unfiltered, uh, biased perspective rather than at its best what a newspaper or news channel is trying to achieve is is a more holistic, rounded, genuinely diverse kind of set of viewpoints that helps the listener, the reader to, to draw their own conclusions. Yeah, I, I mean, I can see that, and I, I you know, I, I, I'm sure you're actually right. I mean, two two things. Number one, what's uh, what's so interesting to me is that uh, the old Enlightenment understanding of truth was a kind of mathematical uh, understanding that 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 truth was a kind of mathematical correspondence between 
an idea in my head and objective reality out there. And, and the closer the idea in my head became to objective reality, the more truthful it was. Hmm. And the problem with this is that it just, it, it doesn't work in the real world. And the biblical understanding of truth, it seems to me, is much more is much more closely related to deciding who is trustworthy. Um, truth is what a trustworthy person tells you, and 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 you you can't get away from that. In other words, it's a human phenomenon. It's it depends on relationship. It depends on trust, and on character, and on authenticity, and. Um, you know, and of course, God is the one who is utterly trustworthy. And therefore, we can trust what he says. Uh, and evil is fundamentally the lie, the liar. So therefore, I think this, you can't get away from questions of trust, you can't get away and, and trust is in ultimately in persons. When I trust an institution, who am I really trusting? I'm trusting the people who, you know, I'm trusting the editor. I'm trusting, or am I trusting the board? Am I trusting the owners? Who, who, that's the problem, isn't it? The, the advantage you- of the Substack is, is that it's, it, it, it makes it much clearer who I'm trusting. And I think if I'm going to use Substack or a equivalent as my, source of use obviously i have to be wise and say okay well i'm not i'm going to choose some different voices uh of people that i trust from different perspectives uh so i'm i'm going to try to expose myself not just to one very particular segment um but and then the question i put back to you would be okay i can still hear what you're saying that that you know the investigative journalism works much better in in a team with resources that can be provided and all the rest. But, but what's your solution? What's your solution to, hmm. uh, particularly to the American uh, free enterprise version of, of news gathering? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I don't have a particularly well-formed, robust policy solution to that. I think fundamentally the media, re- a media will often in a free society will reflect the society itself. And the reason American media has become incredibly partisan, divisive, and in my view, consequently, like less trustworthy, is because American society over the last 10 years has taken that trajectory. And the free enterprise media is following where the dollars are. And there used to be money in the 1970s, you know, there was money uh, to be made for the New York Times or for CBS News or whoever it is, in being a kind of like centrist behemoth that just squatted in the middle of the country and and said, we are going to offer news to everyone, whoever you are, from whatever perspective, wherever you vote, you all come and watch our nightly news broadcast. You all read our daily newspaper and it will serve everyone. And that, and those, you know, those institutions thrived. And today what thrives and does well in a business landscape is the exact opposite. It's hyper-partisan serving a small slice, but getting a lot of money from them by giving, feeding them what they want to hear. I don't have a quick solution problem because the solution to that is fundamentally, you know, how do you solve social division in America, which is beyond the scope of me and this podcast. <laughs> I think what I would say is to push back on your earlier point, you're right that we trust people, but I actually think you can trust institutions. 
I'm have to be cautious about it because obviously institutions are built by people. But I think about something like the BBC. It's far from a perfect news organization. I've read things on there that I think mm, that that's not great. Um, I, I will freely concede that it has its flaws. It has a bias, mostly an unintentional one driven by the types of people who choose to work for the BBC. I think it's better than most at not having a kind of proprietorial institutional level bias. If anything, it's kind of maybe towards the existing establishment, the kind of default, it has a kind of political inertia. But the reason I trust the BBC, almost irrespective of what particular byline name is on the article or which particular producer has put this package together on this 10 o'clock news, is because I trust their standards and their values and that the people who, and that there are good people behind the scenes, the institution upholding basic standards of fairness, impartiality, due accuracy, you know, the right to comment, having everything confirmed by a second source before you publish. Like, I know that there are people behind the scenes baked into this institution who are upholding those standards. And as a result, I trust more the output of something that has the BBC brand on it, irrespective of which individual concerned is doing the journalism, because I believe in the institution. Um, I'm not saying everyone should necessarily follow me in believing in that institution. And there are other institutions that I believe in. But I think I would push back and say, you, it's not true that you only can trust individuals. You can also trust institutions if you think that institution is being rooted on a good foundation. And that's fundamentally what I say to people when they ask this question. Like, there is no shortcut. There isn't, I'm not going to give you a kind of secret way. This is how you find good journalism. We have to just be become very critical consumers of the news. And we need to, you know, go and understand the difference between The Guardian, The Telegraph and The Times or CNN versus Fox News and everything we watch even so so called impartial like the BBC news has to be engaged with in a kind of wise manner and that's that's the only way there isn't there isn't a a kind of a trick a one neat trick to finding trustworthy journalism it's about becoming highly news literate understanding how the media works what the political pressures are what is driving which paper who owns which paper and which media group and where their sympathies lie and then reading everything through the lens of that and and weighing it as seems best and 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 you know making judgment calls that that's the only way really as far as i can see Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. 
You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. One, one more question from uh, a listener, a completely different issue. This is Robert wrote in to say that he had been prompted by this by seeing a recent um, podcast from a BBC podcast from Esther Ranson about euthanasia. Um, and, and what he reflected on is that no one seems to ever talk about the Rubicon that is crossed when euthanasia is legalized. Prior to legalization, everyone's life is protected by law, irrespective of your age, your gender, your physical condition. But once a state legalizes it, it has to make an arbitrary decision as to who can be killed and who can't. And need, I need not say that every nation that has legalized it almost down, almost always with promises to tightly control its application has made it more widely available down the line. And he then goes on to talk about how this has been exposed in Canada when, uh, you know, uh, the government has recently announced there's got a new uh, three digit kind of emergency line number for people for suicide prevention and emotional distress support services. Um, and so Robert says some in Canada will be persuaded by the state not to commit suicide, while others will find the state willing to kill them to save the bother. So I guess this is a question all about the the incoherence or the supposed incoherence and tension between when when legalizing euthanasia while also trying as a kind of government as a country to to reduce suicide do, do you see that incoherence yourself yeah yeah I, I i absolutely do and i think it's something that we often take for granted and we don't see how the the uh suicide prevention activities that go on in society how extraordinary they are i mean it, we we they we just think it's completely normal but actually if you think about it you know every single healthcare professional is trained to recognize uh how to recognize the possibility that someone is at risk of suicide and if there is if you come to the conclusion for instance with someone in severe depression that they're at risk of killing yourself this is regarded as a medical emergency you drop it's equivalent almost to someone about to have a cardiac arrest you you drop everything you get them uh, into hospital if necessary uh, you, they can be sectioned and you use the force of law to f- physically prevent them from committing suicide this is this is accepted and similarly for instance every policeman every prison warder every paramedic you know is trained in uh, how to recognize the risk of suicide what steps to take you know and we think it's completely uh reasonable that we risk the life of an incredibly valuable policeman to go scaling up you know on a bridge <laughs> or a tower crane in order to stop someone destroying their own life and taking an autonomous decision uh and we applaud that we think it's right and proper and and one of the most bizarre things to me examples of this was uh harold shipman who was one of the most prolific mass murderer of in uk history but who was also a gp um and who murdered many of his patients when he was eventually caught up with and he was sentenced to life imprisonment, uh, he was put on suicide watch in prison. And uh, and yet eventually he managed to evade the suicide watch and he killed himself in prison. And the prison then holds an inquiry 
as to what went wrong. You know, mm. why was this mass murderer allowed to kill himself? So, so there is this absolutely hardwired uh, devotion to preventing suicide in our in our society. Suicide prevention is regarded as, uh, and and suicides are seen as an enormous tragedy. And you know, personally, I've been, you know, affected by a whole number of of suicides of close friends or of um, the children of close friends and the devastating consequences and the outpouring of grief which comes from someone who's taken their own life. And so, so one way I've sometimes described it is that suicide prevention or, or the, the fact that we as a society say that this is wrong, this is something we, we don't like, this is part of the glue that binds us all together as a society. Uh, and yet, what the the existence of laws on assisted suicide and euthanasia is that they conceive of the idea that there is such a thing as a rational suicide. That yes, most suicides is something that we absolutely want to prevent, minimise, and if necessary, we will take uh, draconian steps to stop someone killing themselves. But if it's irrational, but there is this separate category which we perceive of as a rational suicide. If you have a life that is not worth living, if you have hopeless and unbearable suffering, and now you wish, or if you know that you're dying of a terminal illness, now your wish to end your life suddenly changes. Now it becomes rational. And what's more now, we as a, as a society have a duty to allow you to commit a rational suicide. So, so you know, philosophically, we've now got two categories. We've got the suicide, which we think is absolutely wrong and abhorrent. And then we've got this separate exception. Now here, and of course, then the question is, well, what is a rational suicide? What are the grounds? And, and can we agree what they are? And, and what so far the... Um, you know, if you look at the different legislatures around the world, they've all come to contradictory hmm. uh, decisions about what a rational suicide represents. In Oregon, you just have to have six months to live, less than six months to live. It doesn't matter if you're in any pain at all. It doesn't matter if you have uh, any distress. Or, but simply having less than six months to live means that if you want to commit suicide, it's an autonomous decision, it's rational. Um, in the Netherlands, you have to have hopeless and unbearable suffering. Uh, you could be someone who's 25 with anorexia nervosa. Uh, but if your psychogenic suffering is of such intensity that the state or the authorities regard it as hopeless and unbearable, then it's rational for you to end your life. Hmm. And, and as Robert points out in his question, there's a deep irony here that you know, the argument that's often made quite strongly in favour of euthanasia is this idea about it's about empowering people and giving them autonomy over the end of their lives. But what we're really saying is we're giving the state, not the individual, the state can decide who is allowed to kill themselves and who is not, who will be restrained by the coercive, punitive force of the state from killing themselves and who will be permitted or encouraged or facilitated. And that's actually an astonishing power to grant to a to a state force, to a government that has the kind of monopoly on on violence, as is often said in political theory, to say actually you can decide when 
which people who which people are allowed to die and which must be kept alive. Well, of course, it's the state that sets the law, but actually, it's the poor doctor, you know, <laughs> who in the end has to exercise quotes clinical judgment. And and that's again one of the irony, you know. Uh, the argument I've made is if you were going to choose a profession to be responsible for deciding who can kill themselves um, and and then to do the deed, you know, the last profession you would choose is a profession that has dedicated itself to life. Uh, You know, much better to create a new cadre of euthanasiologists who are trained in killing people cleanly and effectively but it's the poor blooming doctor who in the end is in the hot seat. They are the one who is supposed to exercise judgment there. So they move out of the cardiac arrest procedure where they've been using all their uh, skill to try and keep someone alive. And then they move into the next room where they try and assess, is this person genuinely wanting to kill themselves and have they got rational reasons and does it fit the law and are they being coerced? In which case I'll sign the form and agree with them. And try and stop their heart rather than restart it in many cases. Quite. Um, I guess the question behind the question is, um, you know, we're we're pointing out the kind of incoherence, the the lack of joined up thinking. You know, Justin Trudeau clearly doesn't see an issue between promoting at the same time and expanding access for Canadians experiencing mental health problems, having access to euthanasia systems delivered by a state-funded health system at the same time as saying, I'm going to invest more money and and improve Canadians experiencing emotional distress so they will have access to support services and and be prevented from killing themselves. He doesn't see a contradiction. We do see a contradiction. Do you think wider society acknowledges that contradiction or that incoherence and even if it exists does it matter like is it a fundamental kind of flaw that will bring the euthanasia movement tumbling down or do you think actually the western world is going to carry on with this glaring contradiction for many many decades to come no problem at all and it's a it's a fascinating phenomenon which i've come across and continue to come across repeatedly and that is how in an in a in a society and often with philosophers, thinkers, ethicists, opinion formers who regard themselves as highly educated, thoughtful, rational people, and yet they end up supporting um, two options which seem to be completely logically incoherent. And there will be many people who would say, what's the problem? You know, we completely support suicide prevention for all this category of people, and we completely support assisted suicide what, what what's the problem and i i see this repeatedly so i mean another area where uh most people if you ask them would say yes we absolutely support the right of disabled children we think the disabled people should be regard given the absolutely the greatest right you know exactly equal rights to everyone else oh and yes we completely support the fact that all fetuses are screened in order to detect abnormalities and parents are completely free to uh, destroy disabled children if it's diagnosed before birth. And, and when you say, isn't that logically incoherent? They say, oh, I can't see your problem. I mean, it's, it's about choice, isn't it? And, and freedom. And so, and there are many other examples of this and, and so much so that I've come to sort of almost recognize this logical incoherence as a phenomenon of 
of the of of our modern age uh it it, it seems to be uh, a kind of distorted thinking processes which uh is characteristic of modernity and i guess at in the past i've hoped wished imagined presumed that some of the absurdity of some of these you know in extreme outlines you know to use your example you know you could take a, a disabled child that is 39 weeks and six days old and a disabled child that is 40 weeks and one day old and the only difference between them is that one is currently inside a womb as one is currently inside an incubator or and say can it possibly make sense that the state says that the child in the womb you're free to murder at will and the child in the incubator will be protected to at the cost of millions of pounds uh, from any threat whatsoever to their life like some of these inc- these contradictions seem so absurd that i've often hoped that they will collapse under the weight of their own incoherence that there's a house we've built a house of cards but it can't last and eventually even our increasingly secular societies will wake up to the nonsense of some of our ethical decision making but i'm less convinced of that now i'm now wondering actually as you say is this just a symptom of how we live and actually human beings are remarkably good at self-deception if it suits their needs and so i'm I'm less confident now that that these incoherencies these contradictions will are inevitably doomed actually i see no reason why in a hundred years time canada it's quite likely to still be simultaneously pursuing strong suicide prevention efforts for some mentally ill people and strong euthanasia encouragement for other mentally ill people. I'm less convinced yeah. that these will collapse under the weight of their own in- contradictions. I, th- I think you're right. And I, I too, uh, you know, as a, as a younger and possibly more naive person, had similarly thought, all you've got to do is point out the contradiction and then people will say, oh, for goodness sake, I never saw this. You know how 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 foolish I've been. Now, what I've discovered often from personal experience is that when you point out the contradiction, people just look at you slightly puzzled and say, uh, "Okay, and what, why is that a problem?" And I think when you when you unpick it, it's because fundamentally they have they have a prior faith commitments. So let's just take the abortion example. Most right-thinking liberal people, you know, from the age of 14, 15 onwards, decide that a liberal abortion policy allowing women to exercise choice is just what every right-thinking person agrees. It's a faith commitment. I don't actually think about the logic of it, the logical coherence. It's a primary commitment. Free abortion is a woman's right. I support it. And then you say, newborn baby and incubator, should we care for it? Absolutely. It's a faith commitment. Every baby deserves the very best possible treatment. I don't really think about it. It's a faith commitment. And then you point out, hang on a minute, you've got two faith commitments. And here they suddenly collide in a most alarming way. Does that worry you? And they go, uh, no, because they're both faith commitments. And I can't, I can't give way on either of those. So I'm going to have to live with the contradiction hmm. I, I guess one example where i think there have been similar kind of contradictory faith commitments that collide that have started to collapse under the contradiction in a much more recent era this has taken us in a dangerous place but it would be the trans debate where 
you know, five or so years ago, it was a faith commitment that trans women are women, end of story, and they have all the same rights as as, as natal females. And yet at the same time, we believe that women should have protected spaces and be free from discrimination, blah, 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 blah. And and that was for a few years, that was that kind of uneasy incoherence held and lots of public institutions across society held both these things to be true. And I feel like in the recent years, actually under sustained campaigning from kind of gender critical feminists and some, you know, uh, Christians and kind of social conservatives has forced sports bodies and governments and prison services to actually acknowledge there are competing faith commitments here, our desire for kind of equality and liberty for trans people and our desire to protect, um, you know, safe spaces for women sometimes are in conflict. And we're now having to do the kind of messy job of, of relitigating all of that. Does that give you any confidence that the similar contradictions and incoherence in the issues around euthanasia or abortion could somehow with lots of hard work and campaigning also kind of be brought to light? I mean, it's a fascinating fascinating world and and you know th- these are rapidly changing isn't it i i too like you have have felt that in some way there is a sort of a movement which is pushing back against one's particular faith commitment in in the transgender field um but it's by no means universal um mm-hmm. and I'm not sure what the ultimate, you know, this is the extraordinary state of, um, of modern political life, isn't it? Of social political, uh, development. And I I mean, I often end up, uh, you know, in a sort of slightly facile way of, of saying, you know, we, we live in a very confused and confusing world. Uh, you know, pe- people are intensely confused. They have because they have these competing faith commitments, and they're trying to make sense of them. And yet, it really doesn't fit. And and we as Christians need to be honest and say, yes, we too sometimes it feels like we have competing faith commitments. We have a faith to be, to the the biblical truth as it is outlined in the Bible. And yet, if we're absolutely honest, you know, we also have a, I have a faith commitment to science and to um, truth in a scientific technological environment. And, and, And sometimes I'm struggling with how these different commitments, it's a very confusing world in which, in which God has placed us. Uh, Ultimately, I believe it is, you know, all truth is God's truth. And ultimately, uh, we will, uh, by through his his power, find a coherent understanding of of this very confusing world. But it's it's work in progress. And it may be that we'll only really live in that kind of that society of truth and coherence uh, in the life to come. Um, and and maybe we'll always be living in the kind of contradictions and the inconsistencies um until until jesus returns um we'll probably have to draw it a close there before we uh, drift off even further off the point but um thank you very much robert and joan for your questions for prompting such interesting conversation um and as a reminder that we're we'd love to see more questions coming in from listeners so do email us molad at premier.org.uk 
Um, also, don't forget, you can find lots of interesting resources to read, listen to, and, and watch on Dad's website. That's johnwyatt.co.com. Uh, <laughs> should know that one off by heart by now, shouldn't I? Um, and uh, a cheeky reminder that you can uh, follow my own Substack newsletter called The Critical Friend. Um, it's tswyatt.substack.com. That's a, a weekly roundup of some interesting church news, my own kind of commentary and analysis on that and a smorgasbord of links and other things to if you're interested in that world so do sign up there it's free but you can also if you'd like if you appreciate what i'm doing you can sign up to pay for it as well uh thanks for listening uh we'll be back with another episode next week but until then bye bye you've been listening to matters of life and death